Uh, where are we, folks? It's been some run, but as you know, today will be our final Thursday pod before Murray, Bernard and myself switch to a members-exclusive format from Monday, when we'll begin the big build-up to England at Twickenham. Over the last three years, we've been lucky enough to have an audience of thousands join us every Thursday. And there's no sugarcoating the fact that when we made the call to make the pod members-exclusive to ensure its viability into the future, we were concerned that we might lose a large chunk of that community. But seeing the sheer number of you who have backed what we're doing and have become members of the 42 over the last fortnight or so has been unbelievably gratifying. And we can't wait now to kick this on into the new chapter. Bernard Jackman and Murray Kinsella on the way, but before I bring in the two lads, I just wanted to very quickly field a few questions on the new Monday pod from prospective members. Brendan Cunningham writes, Lads, is this all a ruse so that Gavin can finally complete his dream of waxing lyrical about Rupeni Thethani Buka for 45 minutes to an hour without the boys interrupting him? Brendan, uh, I reject the premise of your question, okay? But yes, Alan Dooney on Twitter, Gav's impassioned reasoning from the other week has convinced me, so I'm going to sign up. Can I listen to the pods on my usual podcast app? I quite like speeding them up. And yes, Alan, the members' pods are made available on, I would say, 99% of podcast apps once you sign up. And uh, look, we'll try and hurry things up in future for you, okay? And lastly, here's one on email from b.jackman. Will members have the option to vote for a new presenter? Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, I thought these have been vetted actually but uh, you know what I'm just going to reply to that one personally uh, but in the meantime there is a 20% discount on an annual membership of the 42 if you join us before our big show on Monday visit members.the42.ie and use the promo code the 42 or W all caps all one word the 42 or W now Here's your final Thursday episode of Rugby Weekly. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> it is coming out! Rugby, Rugby Weekly. Little reverse pass. You're very welcome to Rugby Weekly. Murray, how's tricks? Good, Gav. How are you? I am splendid, thank you very much. Birch, good to see you. Loads coming up, I've made a note because I'm usually bad at like the intro part where we forward sell what we're going to be talking about and today we've got loads to get into. We're going to kind of bypass the Italy game, let's move on with our lives and talk about slightly more interesting things. Uh, high tackles, red <laughs> cards, the supposed ruination of the game. Uh, <laughs> we're going to focus a little bit on France as well, the makeup of their national team, but also transfers in the club game over there, how they can benefit the little guy. Uh, some moves closer to home, player pathways, alternative player pathways, and we'll get into the provinces as well towards the end of the show. But we do have to start, Murray, with the loss of Andrew Porter for Twickenham. We had a question that we were going to lead with uh, from Kieran Pearson, one of our members, about how Ireland can actually beat England. And this makes the task really harder, doesn't it? It's not just uh, lip service to say that. It actually makes the job a lot harder for Ireland. It sure does. He's been absolutely excellent since moving across to Loosehead. His power, his ability to link pass, um, his just dynamism around the pitch, work rate, mobility, they're all massive points of difference for Ireland, really. And it's two-thirds now of that front row that we were singing the praises of throughout November and into this Six Nations, now ruled out through injury with, with Ronan Kelleher missing. Obviously, we've seen Dan Sheehan step up impressively at hooker, and that's been a positive, but it is a blow. Like, there's no way, there's no two ways about it uh, to lose one of your key guys before going to Twickenham against a, a pack and 
a team that does have a bit of power themselves and, and it's probably relying on that a little bit at the moment to stay competitive. So, yeah, a, a blow disappointment for him. Haven't heard how long it's going to be, but Leinster obviously will be hopeful it's not going to be a, a, a long-term thing. Ireland haven't, as we speak, called up any replacement players, so it's going to be Dave Kilcoyne and Keane Healy stepping into those slots. They've both come off the bench in this Six Nations and they'll both feel they have a, a point to prove. It'll be fascinating to see which way Farrell uses them. He obviously... We've talked about having impact off the bench and, and perhaps Kilcoyne offers that, but he has been in good form with, with Munster as well. So I suppose if you're looking for the bright side, it's the fact that those guys get back in, get a, a big start, one of them under their belts, and, and the other, you would presume, a good hefty stint off the bench. I know, Birch, you'd have loyalty in all of your teammates no matter what, but even if you were Dan Sheehan, who's come in more recently, or if you were Tyke Furlong and you're looking across from you, do you kind of feel an added pressure on yourself and do you feel the loss of somebody who is as dominant as yourself almost yeah no i, I think um i think it's a, it's a big blow to ireland um porter's become an absolute key key player um sheen had a great game against italy but i worry uh, i worry about the loss of kelleher really as, as a scrummaging hooker um and that's going to put pressure on whoever comes in at loose head um uh and look we're very lucky we have two incredibly experienced backup loose heads in kakoin and uh, and healy um worryingly uh, it's not really clear who the next guy up is, you know, in terms of being able to be someone who's going to be in an Irish squad for, for 10 years. Um, there's a lot of loose heads floating around, but none of them have shown yet um, the the real, uh, I suppose, um, ability to come and step up. Eric O'Sullivan obviously looked like he was a really bright prospect and, and still is, but um, hasn't got to that level yet. So it is going to be interesting. I, I think they may go start Healy and bring Kilcoyne off the bench. Um, and I, I know people might say, oh, well, Kilcoyne was ahead of Healy last week, but I don't think so really. I think, you know, that was Italy that was trying to get more guys in the wider squad um, some game time. So it is a it is a blow to Ireland. And, and, it, and it points, it, it shows once again how we really need to get depth, you know, um, and uh, that has to be the priority. In, in the summer is to is to find you know another player in, in most positions who can who can come in and step in and, and not have a huge difference back uh, in terms of performance we know as well the conversation around starters and replacements has probably shifted over the last few years Murray so part of me wants to ask you which way would you lean in terms of who would you start as Porter's replacement but there are all sorts of strategic connotations and permutations that Andy Farrell will be running through his head such as like if Keane Healy can hold his own which I'm sure he can for an hour Dave Kilcoyne is a very handy guy to bring off the bench against tired legs but which way would you go or how would you be thinking about it if I asked you to put your coaching hat on I probably would be leaning that way just because it's probably what I know what I've seen with Ireland Keane Healy being that next in line there and as you say having been in those situations loads of times as has Kilcoyne like neither of them are obviously very young props fresh to to test rugby but it is a another step down your your depth chart absolutely i probably would be leaning towards going with healy at the start and given his familiarity with those kind of tough tests away from home and the pressure that's going to be there and set piece but as i said kilcoin has been doing really well on that front and, and his carrying i think has been a bit punchier in the last couple of months as well it's been great to see from a monster point of view so there'd be absolutely no issues with, with going either way birch is right the the issue is probably behind that and what's coming next it's a longer term one and i've no doubt we'll be returning to it it just flags it all again like once you get one of your key guys injured that's when things get exposed and brought to the surface so yeah you're you're hoping that this 
doesn't happen for Ireland in a World Cup situation where they're heading for a quarterfinal. As we've seen before, it's been really damaging to lose key guys like that. I know, Bert, we're going to get into it for members on our first ever Monday pod as we uh, begin the run into Twickenham, how Ireland go about winning this game. But just answer Kieran's question from this early juncture. And it kind of feels to me a little bit like the 2018 game. I know Ireland are very different. England have kind of moved on, but... Just because they seem to be lacking some of their power guys, like Manu Tulangi isn't part of their training squad, it just has a couple of... Uh, it has me reminiscent of that a little bit in that it feels as though conditionally it's set up for Ireland to do okay here. I don't know, is it an ancestral thing or whatever? I wouldn't necessarily um, fear England, but I know they can do me harm, if that makes sense. So for all the talk of Ireland not fearing them, like it's still a seismic enough task... I just feel kind of confident. Look, we should be confident because our performances have have been better than England's. But I I worry that England are um, just one performance away from clicking. Um, and I know there's a lot of Eddie Jones bashers, and you know there's there's all kinds of rumours that if he if they finish fourth or fifth again, you know he mightn't see see it out to the World Cup. But um, I think there's some talent in that squad. Um, and I think the challenge for us is looking at that game. Um, is, is is effectively our attacking breakdown um, and England's defensive breakdown. So um, they've actually been very hard on the ball, uh, you know, in, over the last couple of uh, couple of games since since effectively John Mitchell left. There's been a focus on on the jackal, which is which is um, unusual because their their new defensive coach is um, is ex, ex rugby league has uh, come in from the Brisbane Broncos and uh, you know usually defence coaches who come in from league their first job in union isn't really focused on the breakdown it's more around connections double hits um, you know line speed etc so it's been uh, it's been quite interesting to, to see that um, and also when you look at Ireland's penalty count um, it's quite paradoxical that we're actually giving away more penalties on attack than we are on defence which is, is quite strange so even though our breakdown is super quick um, Italy in fairness was was a little bit unusual in that there was a lot of uh, um, there was a lot of well, not a lot, there was a few penalties for, for double movement for rolling um, on the ground but I think it's an area that Ireland need to tighten up because in Twickenham you know, if you're sloppy at, at the attacking rook, uh, you know they, their set piece can do a job on you, and that'll give them a chance to to kick up the line and and bring their forwards into play. So I'm sure Paul O'Connell um, and Mike Cat um, will be will, that'll be a big work on for us. And and for me, that puts a little bit of fear in me in terms of you know it's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to win. Murray, as I say, we'll dig into it on Monday. I think we've loads more to talk about, uh, including high tackles and red cards and conversation about. The game being destroyed either by red cards or by, as some people see it, uh, the softening of it. <laughs> and loads of incidents over the weekend, both in the Six Nations, in Connacht's game. Uh, we saw Ruin Nels hit on Conor Fitzgerald. I'm not exactly sure where to start, but you made a very good point in our WhatsApp group during the week, which is kind of what made us think it would be worth uh, discussing, which is that like there's such a dichotomy between how people within the game, quote-unquote, see some of these incidents, it would appear, and those outside of it, per se, in terms of media, fans, just spectators, whatever. Um, it feels like this week, that difference has been highlighted more so than in recent times, and I know this does rear its head every so often. We've had conversations about it on the pod in the past, but it just feels heightened at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Like It's fascinating that immediately after the game, with the Hame Faiva incident, like Peter Romani had a lot of empathy, sympathy f- 
for it. Like, you know, he's clearly not of the view that it's worth a red card. I think that's what he was intimating anyway, that there's no intention there and um, that it's tough for players. He's obviously been in the situation a few times with those kind of um, issues, I suppose. And even on the, the five incident, like there's people I've spoken to who don't think it's a red card. He's obviously had a four-week ban now and Italy themselves and Faiva argued that it wasn't a red card in the disciplinary hearing, which again is kind of, it raised my eyebrows a little bit because you think just take the, the hit, it, you know, he would have got a shorter ban. He could have even potentially been back, couldn't he? If he'd taken a three-week suspension, done the coaching intervention, counts one of the club games because he could have argued that he needed fitness and needed match freshness to to come back so he could have been back for the end of six nations but they argued that it wasn't a red card and you've seen that actually a number of times really and and you you see it in the disciplinary report and and you're usually surprised also on the outside i think supporters and media have thoroughly got our heads around the fact that there has to be a change in rugby with regards to head contact because of what's happening with former players with lawsuits with the optics of you know people being worried to get into rugby that kind of thing which maybe is overstated at times but is a serious issue for rugby at the at the very same time so yeah i think there is a little bit of a divide about how this is being treated from those kind of inside the game including some referees in in my experience as well and, and thinking this is really tough for us we don't want to be given these red cards the players clearly don't agree in a kind of general sense i am generalizing there and us on the outside i think now any sort of high or close to headshot is there's instant demands for a red from from the outside which has been a real transformation in the last few years so it is a fascinating one and even incidents after the game like the ryan baird ones caused a lot of debate and discussion this week in the past it wouldn't have been a, a talking point really everyone would have just moved on probably not even noticed it so there has been a shift but it's almost like those in the game still have to take that final step with it yeah i have no doubt it's more difficult for them to make that shift in fairness Bernard, of course, yeah th- of course. they're the ones actually having to apply the change we're simply watching it right yeah and, and i know it's not easy but it has to change and and look at um i think players will show empathy for another player you know post game particularly what happened with italy having to go to 13 men and, and all that stuff but i i think that the message the message has to be that we got to make the game safer I think world rugby um, you know they they have the right idea uh, but unfortunately they're not being strong enough in terms of protecting referees um, and there's too much inconsistency so I, I think that you know um, there's I, my personal opinion is referees are looking for mitigation too quickly um, and hence players sometimes see violent collisions being punished only with a yellow card and I would take the Stormers um, uh, hit for me that was more dangerous than um, than the, the one in the Italy game um, but yeah it was only a yellow card now I know he's been cited but that's the problem for me is that effectively sometimes you see like even the Gilroy one um, against uh, uh, against the Scarlets I mean that was a that was that was a dangerous tackle and yet it was a yellow card and so the problem is when players see some incidents um, being yellow some being red you know, they start to lose confidence in the judicial system as well, and they don't change their behaviours quickly enough. And look, at behaviours will change. Be under uh, no doubt, behaviours will change. Unfortunately, at the moment, we're in a sticky part, to use an Eddie Jones uh, phrase, where it's kind of we're stuck in the middle. We're not really sure how it looks or how we need to behave. Um, our players need to behave. And I think that the longer that goes on, the more world rugby are going to um, be in trouble. Because I think that, look, to a certain extent... They can 
plead ignorance to some extent um, with what you know the, the Steve Thompson generation, right, uh, who are all suffering at the moment. But you know, since that's come to light, and since all the uh, research from the states has come to life about concussion, I think, I think it hasn't. The reaction hasn't been strong enough. Um, I know they have the right intention, but what we see on a on a weekly basis, even though there's been a spike in red cards, I don't think it's been enough. Um, I don't think it's been enough to change people, players' behaviour. And until we get that changed, uh, you're always going to have the accidental. You're always going to have the, the you know the the uh, freak freak incident where there is head contact, and we can't take that out of the game. That happens in in sports, you know, that aren't you know predominantly about to tackle even GA there can be a head clash etc but um, at the moment in my opinion players haven't adapted quickly enough and they're still trying to target here which is nipple height you start targeting there you have very little room for error and um, we, we, there needs to be a stronger uh, policing of it across the board until until players change like the 5 one like he comes off the bench, he clearly wants to make an impact on the game. You can see in the previous couple of contacts he makes, he's in a similar area. And I understand that you want to make an impact physically. I have to say, I enjoy when people make big tackles and physically dominate their opponent. It's it's part of the game. But he can absolutely be lower than he is on, on the Dan Sheen one, where he's hitting up towards an area that's dangerous. Um, same with Nell, like he, he knows he's going in high there. The Nell one is interesting though because the, the framework and the referees and the TMO talked through it. Um, the framework allowed them to kind of reach that decision. Even though I agree with you, Birch, like it's really dangerous what, how he flew in there. Um, but I suppose there's the, there's the kind of out for, for referees in, in those instances. And by the letter of the framework, I can actually understand how they came to that decision. You can see the very initial point of contact is on Fitzgerald's ho- shoulder. And one of the things, that, the cues that the the match officials and committees and the disciplinary panels have been given is if the, the player's head jolts forward first, then they've been kind of led to understand that that's body contact first, whereas obviously if the head goes backwards first, it's been straight to the head. So there's those little cues there. And actually, I was reading through the, the Lavanini disciplinary report from back in November, the, the hit on Keen Healy, which was really delayed in, in putting up. And they actually used that that specific wording, you know, you know, there's been precedent with head jolting forward first, and that's not a direct head contact. But it doesn't make it not unbelievably dangerous in, in terms of that nail hit. He's really high, and again, I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to go and make a spot tackle, stop the ball, physically dominate his opponent. But he can do that a few inches lower and still get a really good outcome in, in that tackle. Kind of reminds me of some of the spotlight that's been put on head injury in boxing, to be honest. Uh, Similar to rugby, and in fact, uh, in a far more concentrated way, head trauma is always going to be an occupational hazard for boxing. I mean, it's the raison d'etre, right? But in terms of mitigating, mitigating against it, say, a lot of people believe that fighters take most of the damage in the ring over the 12 rounds we see on a Saturday night on our TVs, but like a lot of the damage is done in sparring as well. And I know Steve Thompson made this point about training. But equally, like, people think, oh, if you're sparring wearing a head guard, it protects you from most head injuries. And, like, really, it doesn't because it doesn't prevent your brain from being rattled around your skull. And very similarly, if you're getting smashed marginally to the shoulder first and then nearly getting the head taken off you, like, is that all that different to just having direct contact of the head? Like, to my complete... uh, 
uh, novice mind no you know what I mean and, and it kind of reminds me as well of the conversation that we used to have about spear tackles in rugby whereby if you dropped a guy on his shoulder there was sufficient mitigation there that you wouldn't be sent off whereas if he landed on his head it was a red card not that you would any real control over that outcome either way when you're tipping a guy over you know and it just feels very it feels as though the mitigation is circumstantial and like the overriding sense is that most of these hits are actually just extremely dangerous and when you see people talking about the game going soft or, or what's happening to this great physical game that we used to play like like shut up right have you seen the size of some of these men and the force with which some of these women are carrying the ball into each other you don't need tackles at shoulder height for a game to have edge you know what i mean and if you feel as though the game is becoming depleted as a spectator like tough shit to be honest like I, I i think i still think it's great right but in 30 years time if some of these players aren't able to pick up their grandkids you're not going to be there explaining to their grandkids why granddad or granny can't pick you up or you know <laughs> it's actually not about you like you know it's 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 not your health it's their health and i understand completely how players within the game even in that knowledge are frustrated by it but i wonder is it still too vague Bernard, in terms of how the laws are written, in terms of how they're being subjectively interpreted. Yeah, look, I think there's low. The problem is, um, even when you speak to pro referees, they're not, they're not of the same opinion because they're confused. I mean, you know, I spoke to some referees who didn't think the Craig Gilroy uh, was red. Um, I spoke to others who thought it was a stone cold red. And obviously the sighting committee, committee, you know, uh, felt it was a red. If I'm right, Murray. So, um, so like that, this is the problem. And these are people whose sole job is to, uh, like, the professional referees. Uh, but I'm not blaming them in this situation. I, I just think that across the board, there's a lack of, I think there's a lack of protection and support from from World Rugby, where even if a referee makes a, a wrong a mistake, but he's on the he's erring on the side of player safety. That World Rugby need to support them. I think at the moment they feel that they could be hung out to dry. Um, you know, if they red card somebody who shouldn't be red card, and of course, you know, a nation, a nation would be up in arms if there's a red card um, uh, that that's technically not a red card, right? And 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 the referee would have to carry that uh, for the next couple of years. But uh, and I think at the moment the the they they're, they're feeling that that pressure to be totally 100% sure. And I know, look, there was a red card against against Ireland, but I think there's actually more missed than there's punished. Um, and look, at the, the thing about the game being physical, the game is way more physical now than it was two years ago. You know, um, these players are, are are absolute warriors. But um, and you know, we can have lots of physicality in, in, um, without high shots. You know, that's not a test of physicality. And I would say, you know, going back to your point about training and boxers. You know, teams are doing what you know, uh, 16, 16 minutes or whatever of of bone on bone a week. Um, some are doing less. Like I've been coaching in that level um, and played. There's no high shots in that. You know what I mean? Because players are to have care for the for their teammates. You know what I mean? And yes, yeah, it is a physical. Absolutely, they they absolutely smash each other because you've you first against seconds or whatever you have. You know, um, so there's no lack of intent, but they're very careful. And and you know, coming off the bench because you want to make an impact. It's your opposite up number running at you. Yeah, okay, we understand. But at the end of the day, you're you're, you're you have a duty of care. And also, I think at the moment. Um, I, I, like as far as I remember, I know there's more red cards than before, but red cards 
can can change a game. Wales won at Six Nations, you could argue, last year because they they the opposition had red cards. Um, you know, Wales went out of a, of a World Cup because Warburton got a spear tackle, but that's the drama of sport. You know what I mean? Like I, I felt coming out of the of the of Eve on, on Saturday on Sunday. There's a lot of people who were saying, "Oh, I paid my money. I, I need, I, you know, I deserve a contest." You know what I mean? And uh, like the reality was, it probably needed to happen to Ireland that Ireland made a 13 first to have a contest. You know what I mean? But like that's the that's sport. You know, Italy might win their first game in in, in donkey's years because someone loses a hooker with injury. They lose a hooker to um, to a red card, and they have to go with 13 men. And that might. That'll give Italy a boost, and everyone go, "Wow, did you see the game, the drama, etc." Just because the game followed the pattern we expected it to follow in terms of the scoring, um, but we felt, "Oh, Italy did not don't have a fighting chance because they're 13." I don't think it's a reason to bag the rules, and I, I know people are frustrated by this, by the scrum rule, um, but like I've seen this manipulated in the past, where teams have had a, a dominant scrum, the opposition lose two front rows, and they go on contested, and you only go to 14, and they've been competitive. They maybe it won the match because they've only 14. So that's not, you know, rugby union is supposed to be a game uh, for all shapes and sizes. And I know the scrum pisses people off, um, but it's a legitimate way of winning games. It's a, it's a very strong part of why rugby union um, is different than rugby league. And teams who spend a lot of time coaching, working under under scrum, finding new talent, should get the reward of that. Um, in my opinion. So, uh, look at. It. Yeah, it ruined the game to a certain extent, um, but it's a, it's it was brought in for a reason, and um, you know I don't think we should just expect to manipulate the uh, the rules and regulations to make sure we all get a contest um, every every time. It's it's the drama and the jeopardy of sport that outside factors can influence results. So that's my opinion on it, and and particularly as well, like no, you know the referee shouldn't have. You know the 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 worry about I'm going to ruin the contest. You know uh, uh, if he's given a red card, if it's an act of, of dangerous play and foul play. So I think sometimes we forget that, and and it's it's uh, we need to think about it. You know? Yeah, like Faiva is culpable in that instance. Just to jump back, and I know you want, we want to move on, Gav, on the head contact process, which was formerly the the framework. We do need a process like that there because rugby is such an area, uh, such a, a sport of grey areas, like. Even this week, World Rugby's Rugby Committee couldn't make a definitive ruling on whether Johnny May's try against Italy in the corner was legal. I know it's a different issue, but like the very board of the the sport at the highest level don't know for sure whether that was a try, it seems. So we do need a definitive process for this kind of stuff. Otherwise, referees are in an even more difficult position. Like, is that dangerous? Yeah, you're gone. It will be a really large grey area at that stage. But just like going through the the... The head contact process. Question four is, is there mitigation? And right alongside it says, mitigation will not apply for intentional or highly reckless acts of foul play. And I think probably a lot can go under that highly reckless, where you have no awareness of the danger and consequences to the other person. Because as you've just described, the danger and consequences can be really, really damaging and and long-lasting. So there is that there for for referees as well in in the process and the Baird one finally because I know loads of people have been talking about and discussing it it is a fascinating one it would be great to know from the siding commissioner's point of view what what he saw there and didn't see because all we have is one angle where I've slowed it right down I've paused at each little point you can't say for certain what has happened there Baird is kind of standing still he's not hitting into the tackle it's 
you know, it's just not clear. There's obviously different angles there. They've obviously seen enough, both the TMO on the day and the siding commissioner since not to cite that as a as a you know dangerous, reckless high tackle. So it'd be good for us all maybe to have a bit of insight into that. We don't get a chance to interview siding commissioners and those kind of people behind the scenes. That's just not part of the process, but it would probably be helpful because otherwise everyone goes away now thinking that Ireland were absolutely blessed and that Ryan Barry got away with something when potentially that wasn't even the, the case at all. It's not that they're hiding anything, but more transparency from them would be welcomed. I, I'm not even sure if they have the capacity really to explain their decisions or anything like that but even a framework for that would be beneficial for sure wouldn't it just to have it all out in the open and um, giving people more information we do need to move on Birch we wanted to talk about France and not only their very formidable national team but the makeup of it the ethnic diversity within it and I know you were keen to get into some of your experiences of that down in France as well. Yeah, so it's just something that maybe people don't know a huge amount about, but there's um, there's been a massive focus, and this is sorry, there's been a increased uh, influence of the players from from French uh, French Polynesia, um, and some of it is you know it's not new in French rugby. I mean, Willie Taufania, uh, who's Roman and, and Ben Taufania's father, uh, played for Grenoble. Uh, he's a legend in Grenoble. He played in a, in a top 16 final. Um, he played sometimes in the back row, or sometimes centre. But he he joined the French um, French army um, from 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 New Caledonia. New Caledonia. Um, he inscripted. He was based near Grenoble. Uh, Grenoble was, was an amateur club, and uh, so he joined. He joined Grenoble and uh, became a, a huge influence on in, in the club. And some of the club's best times in history were were built around with him being the hard man and the the go forward guy. And obviously, then you know, Roman and Ben have have both had interesting careers. Their their the lad's cousin is is now uh, Donovan is is a winger for um winger for Racing, having come through um Claremont um and the, the the reality is it's not like you know going to Samoa or Fiji or Tonga and bringing those kids into your academies, which which has happened in France uh, and uh you know we did it in Grenoble um but it's a it's a much easier transition for them because. You know they speak French. You know they the their clubs are are registered members of the of the French uh, Federation. So, um, and what basically what you're getting is is Polynesians who are French. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, we know Polynesians are are um are, are incredible athletes. Their, their influence has gone from, you know, not just being dominant uh, in rugby league and rugby union to being a big part of the NFL now. Um, and there's been a big spike in in Polynesian players uh, playing in the NFL because they're they're effectively, you know, ideal for that uh, anaerobic sport, you know, where you know, big focus on power, um, footwork, etc. So, um, and it's interesting. We so we could see that this there was a re- so Grenoble. Um, we we were competing with Leon and Bourguin, um for the best young talent in in their own Alps, um, and Bourguin obviously have gone down the ranks, but. They were uh, when I joined Grenoble. They were um, they just be knocked out of top fourteen. They were obviously there used to be a top six club in, in the top fourteen every year, and we're always in the Champions Cup, but didn't have didn't target it, so they took the piss a bit. Uh, but a very rich academy, a lot of really good players from Bourguin had gone on to play for France, etc. Um, and so we found it hard to to get into them. We also had historically we'd have financial problems, so we got thrown down to Federal One. 
um, in the 2000s because the club went into administration. So that's not a good thing when you're trying to recruit young players, you know, when they say, hang on, you could go bankrupt uh, next year. So Borgwan and Leon were probably on a better financial footing. So um, we, we, we looked to try and tour New Caledonia um, for pre-season to basically... Look, it wouldn't have been a. We wouldn't have found a competitive game there, but just to go down and do a training camp, build a relationship with some of the local clubs, the local coaches, to um, try and have that as a some kind of a maybe set up an academy down there. Um, now it didn't happen. We didn't have the money to fly there, but um, we were doing some webinars with with some of the local coaches. Um, we did try and tap into it, and and there's a guy. There's a there's basically a guy in. Um, uh, in Racing, Racing Metro, Michaeli, uh, you're better with the pronunciation than me, Murray. How, how would you pronounce it? Tugahala. Very good. Tugahala, yeah. So t- Michaeli, Michaeli basically, actually, there's a very good film on Netflix uh, uh, called Mercenary, and uh, look, it's not, it has, it's not a high production in terms of spend, but it gives you an insight into, uh, and Michaeli plays the the player. Um, there's, 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 there's French Polynesians uh, dotted throughout. All aspects of French rugby, where they come to France to to try and you know make a make a living, they send money home, similar to the Fijians, the Samoans, and Tongans. Um, and uh, they it, it's 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 some way it's sad because they they come for economic reasons, but in other ways it's positive because they can make a better life for themselves and they can you know earn enough money to support family family back home. So I'm not sure if if it's good or bad to be honest. Uh, but when you see someone like Roman Tafania or or Mofana or Muvaka, you know, get to play for France and and the finance financial benefits that come with making it all the way to the top, um, I think it's it's something worth noting. And and it kind of, I mean, the French rugby team have nearly tapped into every single ethnic um, uh, group in 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 France at the moment. Uh, and um, and for, obviously it's a it's a it's a very it's a highly populated country, um, and I, I think that this team, you know, obviously they're they're pretty decent on the pitch, but um, they certainly have you know grasped the the attention of of all areas of French sport. It's not a high, it's not a, an upper class sport in France or or even middle class sport. It, it's now become a game for everybody, which I think is is phenomenal. And uh, even like even that area, um, so. Um, uh, Waki, Waki grew up in the in the area, the suburb where Stade de France is, and it's a it's a tough it's a tough area. You know, it's not an area that you would you would um, like to be alone. You know, late at night, and 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 it's not an area that was ever uh, targeted for, or, or sorry, not, was ever full of rugby clubs. But um, you know, it's starting to pick up players from all all parts of France, rich and poor, which is which is which is brilliant. I think. Has there been a concerted effort on that front, Birch, or has it traditionally always been a game for everybody and we're just seeing more people competing in it now? Like, has there been a shift from it being... I think it was, no, yeah, it has, it has shifted because, um, well, particularly Paris. I mean, uh, Paris and Marseille. So Marseille was a soccer city. Uh, Paris was a soccer city. Um, but it was a great club, Massey, um, who haven't who haven't had... Uh, uh, were, you know... McAlew and I think Bastereau, uh came from. They haven't been able to hold on to the players, right? But they have been a really good club at going into the suburbs of Paris and finding these kids who who want to play rugby and sending them bus in, giving them food after training, giving them kiss, training them. I mean, you know, it's, it's so we had a guy, um, Mamadou Diaby. He plays for Bordeaux now, and he 
he was a kickboxer. Um, no rugby in, in his in his uh, apartment block in Paris. No rugby in his family. He saw a match on TV and he goes, "Oh, I'm strong. Gusto, Gusto is powerful. Like he's a very strong boy." He goes, "I'm strong. I could play rugby." Uh, so he, he rang uh, Stade Francais and they said, "Look, we don't do trials. Like you haven't played rugby before." And then uh, he, he rang them the following year and they said, "Look, we're actually doing physical testing." And uh, he went in and his his vertical jump, his his bench press, his clean was so good. They actually gave him a contract, right? And then. Uh, they were like, this one I can't. After a while, the coach was like, we don't have time to train this guy how to catch a ball, how to tackle. So he ended up kind of going to Racing, and then Racing put him on loan to Ayana, where Christoph Urios spent a lot of time trying to teach him. But he wasn't the finished product yet, and uh, he came off the bench against us in a match, and uh, like he was just, he was just special in terms of what he could do athletically. So I managed to get him out of Ayana. Racing weren't really worried about him because um, look, they don't have time to to they don't have time to develop these guys. They're they're about performance. But um, we had time and we, we we didn't have much money, so we had to take a chance. He did really well for us, and then we sold him to Bordeaux, where he's been captain. Um, he hasn't been far. Off. He, 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 I thought he would have got capped for France, but he just missed that boat. There's so many really good French back rows now, but he was talked about as 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 a potential there. Um, but my my point is Massey, uh, and the reason it's come up is Biritz have sold their two best young forwards to to Stade Francais for a million a million euro. They reckon, um, that's not about that's not just about the players being under contract. That's about the indemnity you have to play you pay a club. If you take somebody who's been uh, formed, so they call it a centre form the match on. So basically, if you've been formed in that club, uh, there's a there's a strict criteria about how much you pay. That's what we sold Thomas Jomes to uh, to La Rochelle, but because he played seven top 14 games for us, because he'd been in our academy for three years, because he played French in our 20s. There's a there's a, a way of calculating his value, right? And again, people might say, oh, that's just that you know you're treating people, players as as um, as assets. It's actually it, it, they are assets, right? And the time you spend uh, investing in them um, in the French system uh, can can basically pay for the next generation because the super rich clubs who are chasing silverware and who have bigger budgets and all that stuff, they now have to compensate you for for the development you've you've made. So Massey's business now is, you know, finding really good young talent, spending time with them, and when you get a, a Wacky or a Bastro or a Macaloo. Um, you get cash in the bank, which goes back into, you know, sending the bus into a suburb um, an hour away on a, on, a, on a Tuesday night to pick up a load of under-14s who want to play rugby, bring them to the club, feeding them, you know. So um, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing because Biritz, Biritz will get the financial benefit of having created these players. Obviously, it'd be far better for Biritz if they had the financial wherewithal to stay in the top 14 and to, to keep those players. But... If you don't, you know it doesn't punish the player. The player gets to play for a club who has a chance of silverware. Um, he gets a better contract. Um, but as I said, the most important thing is money goes back in uh, to the grassroots inadvertently through that transfer fee, um, and it, it feeds the, the it fuels the, the the desire to create the next generation. Because I think if you if you create play, if you build players and develop players, and you get no compensation, you lose you know you lose motivation, and the club maybe start to cut back on on the, the money they're willing to spend on development. So I think it's just something that maybe people don't see, but it, it, it's it's become part of French rugby. Transfers have been in the game for a while. Very on very rare that we hear about them properly. Um but you know this is it's now become common practice in France and I, I think it's not a bad thing. Yeah Murray it's uh Matthew Irogoyen and uh Lucas 
Paris Blanc, I think, are off to start for a million quid Midi-Olympique, uh, reporting that during the week, just closer to home, because, look, it's great for those two lads. They're getting a, a move to the very, very top level. Um, but I think you were on a call with Keen Prendergast during the week. Were you on that, personally? Mm. I should have checked. And he was very interesting about himself, about his brother. And equally, we see... Uh, Shane O'Brien joining Ulster after impressing in the IOL for City of Armagh. Different sorts of pathways, but uh, good to... It's honestly just good to see different sort of stories emerging of players making it to the top level, or, or uh, hopefully in O'Brien's case, compared to the conventional route that we all know about. Yeah, and even Aaron Hare, the Shannon scrum half going into Munster for, for short term as well. I think it's brilliant to have different... Like Birch mentioned diversity there in a different way, diff- players who've come towards senior professional rugby in different ways. I think the backgrounds and diversity of those can contribute really massively to a, a good environment. As as we said with Frank Brad, Bradshaw Ryan having a different experience over in the Pro D2, learning about rugby in a very different way. The Prendergast one is it was just fascinating. I thought he spoke really well. He's obviously been um a massively impressive figure this season. He gets better every single game. He's only twenty two, his his output is is really impressive across the board, all areas of the game. Um, and I suppose he kind of had a quick turnaround, really. He got a call from Noel McNamara during the lockdown, April 2020, saying there was no spot for him in the Leinster Academy. And two days later, Connacht Academy boss Eric Elwood calls him and says, do you want to come down? He said he had said yes before Elwood even finished the sentence. Such was his eagerness to, to get across. And he's a brilliant example of there's so many players who probably miss out on Leinster Academy who have a lot to offer because, as we said, the funnel gets so tight there in terms of going up to Leinster. It's one of the strengths of, of their system, but <clears throat> Prendergast is a brilliant player. I think he's going to play for Ireland. I think it's fantastic that Irish rugby was alert and aware to it and Connacht pounced and, and gave him an opportunity because he, and you know him, Bert, you, you know his, his background. He is really impressive character. His parents were in the army and you can see probably traits in terms of his um work ethic and his his desire just to to play straight away he went down and he wasn't thinking about being in the academy and being a young guy he wanted to play straight away and and Pete Wilkins the senior coach said he basically demanded inclusion not verbally but just by the way he went about his his business so I think that's a great success story and there's been a number of other guys like that who have have obviously gone through or sorry gone to other provinces um mainly out of Leinster obviously and done really well um, I think that's fantastic to see this. Shea O'Brien won again, really good, really positive for the AIL. A young guy who's been impressing with City of Armagh. We want to ensure that the, the league in Ireland is a really viable route. And it has been, I mean, we kind of touched on it last week, but it has been brilliant to see the kind of renewed energy, I think, around the league. Obviously, the lack of rugby has, has, in the last two seasons has led to that, but there's just so much enthusiasm out there. There's so much energy in the, the coaching and um, development of players and to see guys like that stepping up is just absolutely wonderful himself and her and and you'd hope that they'll they'll get in there and grab their opportunities and, and really impress because they have something different to bring they haven't gone through the exact same route as, as other guys through academy been stars all the way along but um, they can have different skill sets and different viewpoints on things so I think it's a brilliant part of the, the game even the, the France thing excites me so much that there's a diverse squad there it excites the French people as well which is really really apparent when you're at Stade de France the, the last day the, the fans have really grasped onto that team because 
they represent the nation they really do there's all different strands to france so many it's a fascinating country and the rugby team is really representing that as well as being really good on the pitch but i think there's still a way to go in irish rugby with, with that kind of diversity we've spoken about it before um and i think it's good that different guys from different strands and avenues are coming into the pro game virtue of some breaking transfer news for us by all accounts no it's not it's, it's not breaking but i think i i, I agree with uh, murray i mean you have to give credit to keen prendergast as well because um you know he had he, he was doing a degree in ucd he's a he's a bright kid he had to be willing to to take that rejection of of not making the leinster academy and pivot to a new a new course in ucg and and back himself and go in there and, and um make an incredible impression yeah like his his uncle is Gar- garvin ware who was a very good footballer for wicklow and Airog. um and i think it's the big thing is his mentality his mum and dad have a leadership company he's a born leader and so is his younger brother sam um who's in the leinster sub academy and out half who's for me and having worked with him is the most like uh, out half that I've seen for a while to Sexton in terms of his ability to influence others. So, you know, you got two very talented uh, young players, and it should be interesting. You know, uh, will will Prendergast will it be room for for Sam in Leinster, um, or will he have to to travel as well because he's going to make it as a pro? There's there's no doubt. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's it's great to see a, a guy who has that rejection just bounce back. And two years later, he's in an Irish squad. Okay, as a development player, but ahead of probably five or six lads who were deemed better than them you know two years ago and, and that's what you want i think connaught um i need a great win for connaught against the stormers and, and obviously the scarlets because they needed to win those two games um and i think they're going to be strengthened next year i believe peter dooley and adam byrne um will be heading west and obviously josh murphy so it's great to get the really good young talent that other provinces miss out on but it's also nice to be able to bring in you know players who have 50 60 uh, 70 pro or URC games. Someone Adam Byrne is an international, um, and I think that'll give them a big boost as well. And I, I, I totally support. You know, I know other provinces have to cut their budget, but if Connacht had to budget had to cut their budget this year significantly because of financial implications of COVID, I think you, you would take their competitiveness away. So um, I don't know what their budget is, but I'm certainly heartened and uh, to see you know players of the quality of Dooley and Byrne going down there if, if that does happen, which I believe it will. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what we want in Irish rugby. Those two guys have the potential to be even better than they are. Adam Burns obviously played for Ireland, as you say, and he's shown real glimpses of it since he got back from a really tough time with injury. You want to keep a guy like that in the Irish system. And the, I suppose there has been a reluctance that we've had to break down around those interprovincial moves. And obviously, New Sephora, too, is in fairness to him has really pushed it and he's had resistance with it and he's had to fight back at times and Leinster obviously get frustrated and stuff with younger players potentially and and guys they have in their kind of depth chart for for the future but it is a positive for Irish rugby like those two transfers three with, with Josh Murphy that could make Connacht just a much better team as you say with senior figures like that as well as the the bargains that they're picking up around the transfer market it's been good to see Leva Fafida really showing what he's about even Tia Tia Tuimonga has been really good covering both sides of the scrum. Obviously, like Mac Hansen comes in under the radar and is now an Ireland international as well. So that kind of recruitment is, is really positive as well. But you're you're bang on. You need those kind of senior figures as well. And um, yeah, it all adds up, doesn't mm. it? Hansen under some people's radar anyway. Uh, Connacht are away to <laughs> Edinburgh this weekend. We never lived that down, Murray. Yeah, it was bad. It was, our, it was my worst moment. It was our worst moment. In all seriousness, though, because of those... Those three players that you mentioned that are moving to Connacht, like what was most impressive to me about their victory over the Stormers was the impact off the bench. It's not an original point. It was well flagged afterwards, but like the bench actually forced them over the line in that game. 
and got the job done and how many times have we had the conversation this season about their comparable lack of depth or their lack of depth comparable to uh, the other provinces and how that's probably held them back at key moments in, in key games you think of Leicester, Stad, and so on so when you have those reinforcements coming in I'd imagine from Andy Friend's point of view Birch like it must be such an exciting prospect to be doing very well at the moment uh, to be sixth in the table you're traveling to fifth place Edinburgh but also knowing there are reinforcements coming over the horizon yeah absolutely and I think that cost them in Europe um, in, the, in, in the last two rounds where they had a mixture of injuries and COVID and they were just like treadbare on the bench but I think what we saw at the weekend was when they have you know um, a little bit of luck uh, in terms of availability they, I think they've got I think they've got 25 players um, at the moment who you know there's absolutely no worries about um, about bringing them, starting them, or bringing them on. I think then they have probably 15 players who they're in the development stage, and you know they, they need to get that game time, uh, the time in the saddle to to show whether they're good enough or not. You know, but when you sign, you know, a Josh Murphy or, or an Adam Byrne or Peter Dooley, you need, there's no development with them. They're developed, they're ready to go. They'll have a point to prove, um, and I think that's. That's the safety net you want. So you, for Connacht, probably it's to have 30 guys who are, um, you know, two in every position who you're totally comfortable with. They're still going to have a massive role in developing talent because that's just the nature of, of, of where they are in the in the pecking order. And I think Andy Friend and Peter Wilkins and and Mossy Lawler etc. They know that and and um, they accept that. But it's great to see them have a what looks like on paper a fighting chance. Um, and 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 I think that's getting that way, which is great. It was good, Gav, just to, to see them come back to win a game, like a reversal of the roles that we were talked about in, in January, where they were in a really tough situation. The Stormers had some really nice <clears throat> purple patches, I suppose, in that game. <clears throat> and as you say, they finished strongly over the top, having picked a bench that had, you know, Caelan Blade, Ireland International, Connor Oliver, one of the most impressive performers this season. Um, and everyone else on the bench had done well this season. It was as you say, you've kind of changed the view of the bench at times and you're selecting guys there who can really help you over the line rather than just be potential replacements for injuries as it maybe was in, in the past. It was it was good selection as well in terms of how they picked the, the 23. But I just, I thought it was fantastic that they come from behind and show that kind of grit. And the, I mean, the Tom Daly try just underlined what they can do in attack. It was absolutely outstanding and they continue to be a, a joy to watch in that sense. Guys like Tom Daly, he's one who kind of went under the radar from Leinster to Connacht and has been so important over the last two seasons. So great to see them back into that kind of form and um, long may it continue. Absolutely. Birch, will they get the job done in Edinburgh over the weekend? Tough ask. Yeah, tough ask. Uh, um, fairness to Edinburgh, I think they uh, they, were, they were poor against Leinster. They played a bit better against, against Munster, but um, were quite sloppy ball in hand. I think Edinburgh have... You know they've got really invested in that second string, um, brought in quite a few uh, foreign players to cover when when they lose you know 14, 15 players to the Welsh or to the Scottish squad. So it won't be easy, but it should be a great game. Actually, both teams like to play, um, and I think Connacht will fancy their chances of, of of getting a win given you know given the, they had a very good away win the Scarlets. Um, yeah, so it's probably for me that's probably the, the, the game of the weekend in terms of um, how both teams are going to throw it around. Call it, Murray. Ooh, Edinburgh just I think it'll be a, a brilliant match but yeah Edinburgh at home I'll go siding with them that's 25 to 8 on Friday at the same time Ulster host Cardiff should be business as usual you'd imagine Birch yeah I think I, I like Cardiff actually I like how they're developing under Di Young um, very good set piece very good scrum um, 
their kicking game against Leinster. If, if anyone wants to look back and see where potentially how, how you play against Leinster, look at the variety and the accuracy of of Cardiff Cardiff's kicking game. Um, they they found grass on countless occasions, um, got the ball back regularly, and uh, they were very good at defensive breakdown. So it's a, it's a tricky one for. I think the the Cardiff and 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 the Ospreys are both. Um, they're very pragmatic in their game plan. Um, just I think at the moment Cardiff have probably better players and, and are capable of of doing more damage um, than than the Ospreys. And uh, look at you know, Ulster. Expect Ulster to win, but I I, I think that Cardiff are, Cardiff are on, a, on an upward curve as well, and uh, it could be a tight match. You do get that impression with Cardiff. I think they're twelfth in the table, Murray, but it doesn't feel representative of where they are, or maybe maybe it is representative of where they are and just not where they would appear to be going. Yeah, they're they're close to being where they want to be and there's so many good elements to their to their game, but definitely a game that Ulster should win in my opinion. They've got the influx of guys back from release from Ireland camp. Henderson hopefully making his return. Human Balakun, your game breakers, which Ulster have probably relied on a bit, and that's a good thing to rely on is is backs who can break open a game and, and provide those uh, difference making moments with with ball in hand those two guys have done it repeatedly Nick Timoney's back as well so I think they'll be a strong enough Nick to, to win that one just very quickly lads and a reminder to everybody that we will be talking about these games first thing on Monday for the 42 members but Leinster away to Benetton that's 5-1 to one on Saturday and then Munster at home to Dragons at quarter past five on the same day call them both for us there Murray before we wrap I think Leinster win. I've enjoyed watching them. Sorry, I know, I know you want a quick one here, but I thought it was brilliant to see the Lions actually give them a, a, a tough test last weekend. It's exactly what we wanted from the South African team. So that was was brilliant to see. Some really good young players. Joe McCarty standing out again. And you'll hope he'll continue to get minutes next season when, when Jenkins is in there. Max O'Reilly, I thought, was really good. And, and Osborne and, and Scott Penny is just a remarkably good player for 22. So I think Leinster will win that one. And the Munster one, yeah, I'd back them as well in that. Yeah, just on Joe McCarthy, watch out for his younger brother, tight head for Blackrock College. He's been the most most yeah. impressive tight head um, I've seen. I, I, I know Leo was watching the game and, and there's a big raps on him. Really physical, um, like, like like Joe, but uh, just a shorter version and a tight head prop. Um, he, he's one to watch. Um, yeah, so, and I agree. I, I think the South Africans, they're going to be an unbelievably good addition to this URC uh, next year. I mean, the Sharks have signed the Jager now. Um, they've signed Sadie, who's that massive tight head prop who played for the Lions and caused all kinds of problems for uh, for Leinster Scrum. Uh, so he's moving to the Sharks. Uh, you know, uh, Am has just re-signed. He's obviously going to Japan for for two months, but he, you know he's going to be there. Khaleesi, I know the 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 Lions are looking at their roster for next year, um, and they're, they're, they just came to the v, or to the RDS and, and just played and 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 actually they they lured Leinster into the, into Leinster got quite chaotic as well and uh, kind of took them out of sync a little bit and that's that's exactly what Leinster need. I mean, too often. Um, and Munster as well and Ulster so, sometimes those those URC games used to be a, a formality and they just go mm. through it at 80% and because they were dominant in terms of personnel but I think as this competition grows those South African URC teams are, are going to come and really test us in, in ways that we haven't we only usually get exposed to at the deep end in Europe so um, really positive to see uh, how they're starting to be, uh, develop and become accustomed to Northern Hemisphere rugby if I can have one last word on Munster, Gav, um, there was a, there's a piece on their website which is really encouraging. It's with Ian Costello, the academy boss, 
and normally like there's not that much in those kind of releases but there's a bit of detail around what they're doing down the pipeline working with players who've been knocked out of the senior cup getting them in camps adding the other guys in after that they're doing position specific skill sessions with loads of coaches there and obviously club players and under 17 session or match i think they mentioned in ul as well it's great to hear about that kind of stuff there's a new um uh, what do they call it center of excellence isn't it yeah. birch in, in feathered to have better facilities as well for the province and it is something we'll probably come back to again i've discussed around monsters development pathways um but i just thought it was excellent to hear about that good work being done there given that the players are coming through and, and hopefully lots more of them to come yeah talking to a friend of mine who's a schools coach and a, an aol coach he mentioned the exact same thing to me over the weekend and how impressed he was by costello but also how costello has sort of um not reintroduced it i think it was always there but like really put an emphasis on it and uh it's properly run and you just said it's unbelievably beneficial to the players that this particular coach is working with it is something we'll come back to we will come back as well just on that just finishing i think that that's absolutely brilliant and uh, sorry i know we all we're all want to talk about it but i think costello um costello's cv and uh, the job he did when the lads were stuck in south africa he could easily be a contender for a job with the senior team again um but uh, i think it's so important that they hang on to him now you know he's he knows it from when, before he went away he's obviously experienced different things in in england but as a head coach in the championship and then obviously as a, a part of the was coaching team and uh, i think that 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 position he could have an influence on munster for the next 20 years um uh, and you know i know it's it, it depends on what he wants to do but i think uh, he's already made a massive start in in, in, a, in a difficult time with covid and things like that Listeners think that I'm trying to rush the two of you off the call. Like it's it's you who has to go, Birch. <laughs> <laughs> I could sit here all day. Boys, thank you as always. I want to say a, a serious thank you as well to everybody who's tuned in over the last three years. It's been so much fun. I think we've said most of it already, but just to reiterate how uh, much it's meant to us that you've kind of followed us along this way. And to thank you as well for all of your contributions, your emails, your tweets, your questions, be it in the members WhatsApp group or on the street or whatever. It's been amazing. We'll be back on Monday and we're going to chat about all of the weekend's action for the 42 members. A reminder, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, there's a 20% discount if you sign up to become a member between now and Monday's show. And it's members.the42.e and the promo code is uh, the42RW, all caps, all one word. That's us. Back on Monday. Mind yourselves in the meantime. Take it easy. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. I didn't keep it real from the jump. Living at my mama house, we'd argue every month. I was, I was trying to get it on my own. Working all night, traffic on the way home And my uncle calling me like, where you at? I gave you the keys, so you bring it right back I just I just think it's funny how it goes Now I'm on the road, half a million for a show And we started from the bottom, now we're here Started from the bottom, now my whole team Yeah, started from the bottom, now we're here Started from the bottom, now the whole team here Start, Started from the bottom, now we're here Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here.